Welcome back to the 89th episode of the Professor Penn Podcast. This is David Penn welcoming you back. Uh, it's the 29th of January today, Monday morning. I'm in the studio with my young producer, Elia. Very happy to see him. Uh, we're going to record two uh, podcasts this morning because of our schedules. So we're going to be sitting in here with you for three hours doing a Tuesday night podcast that's going to go up on uh, the 30th of January at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. And then the second one, the 90th, will go up on Thursday, which is February 1st at 7.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, as long as everything goes as planned. Tonight's podcast is on trauma. Trauma. I'm going to talk a little bit about trauma because trauma defines, <clears throat> boy, it defines so much of what we do. And uh, we're, tra- we're all traumatized to some degree, some more than others. And we act out of our trauma, and we re-traumatize each other. And, and uh, we, you know, we just need to get aware of it and wake up and try to arrest that process, which is something that's been going on psychologically for 100 years. <laughs> Not making a lot of progress yet, are we? We're still just beating the urine out of each other. Wow. Yeah, it's a little disappointing, but... Uh, uh, disappointment does not mean give up. Disappointment just means disappointment. I want to thank Free People Radio for uh, making this uh, platform available for the Professor Penn podcast. Now, I know we're going to be getting a lot of new people uh, into the podcast, into the live chat, and that's because I've become very active on social media, particularly X, and uh, in my own style, I'm trying to engage in a uh, dialogue with a wide variety of people and uh, I have uh, really an initial goal. The initial goal is to de, uh, demilitarize this conversation that's going on on X. It's, it's very obvious to me, based on my background, that so much of what's going on out there is being done by large organizations that put influencers on the payroll and these influencers are there both on the left side and the right side to polarize the people, to create emotional reactions, and to uh, diminish the intellectual capacity of the reader, which is crazy because we're reading. But, of course, this is propaganda. It's mind control. It's brainwashing. You know, it's all out there. It's a wild environment. And I'm cool with that. I mean, it's an open platform. So, you know, the CIA people are out there, the Democrat Party people are out there, the Republican Party people are out there, all these people are out there, including foreign actors. Well, that's just great. I can feel who you are, and uh, that's just me. Now, some of you are going to fool me, which I'm going to talk about uh, over the course of these two podcasts today. I get fooled because, you know, if you're really good at being a liar, you can fool people. What a great skill that is, to be a really high-end liar. What a great skill. What a fantastic skill to be able to lie at a level that you can fool intelligent, educated people. That's just fantastic. And to my audience that's in the live chat, when these people come in, when they come in, and they probably will be disruptive, uh, I do not want, uh, unless it becomes uh, an incitement to violence or becomes openly uh, somehow uh, misogynistic or racist or anti-Semitic or homophobic, you know, if there are efforts made to bring about the worst in anybody in the audience, yes, then we're going to have to protect the American values that we all agree on. 
which we respect each other. We respect each other. That's the number one thing about having a culture, a community. We respect each other. We share the same culture. The fact that we're having a disagreement just means our culture is going to evolve in some form or fashion that is as yet unknown. And that's what we're having a conversation about. What will be the nature of that evolution? And when these people come in, they're going to come in and they're welcome. I welcome you in. I want you to follow me on X. I want you to go back and look at the previous 89 uh, podcast efforts that I've made. And those of you, I've given some educated people now. Boy, I had a guy this morning that was obviously educated and he knew we didn't agree, but he liked the way I talked to him, which which was with respect and an openness to discourse. And that's what we need. We don't need people labeling each other. I mean, that's just not going to go good. We don't need fortune telling where we're telling the future like we know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. I know what might happen. I know a number of certain outcomes, but there's a bunch of things I know nothing about. This goes back to the last podcast I was talking about Chief Seattle when the uh, white Unionist army, and it was a white colonialist army, was seeking to... um, imprison Chief Seattle and his tribe on a reservation, the white general made a presentation. Chief Seattle was sitting there, and he, he, he took his, a stick out, and he, he drew a small circle, and he said, this is what the Indian knows. And then he drew a much bigger circle that encompassed the small circle, and he said, this is what the white man knows, as if to say that the white man knows so much more than the Indian the Indian needs to defer, and they did call them Indians, okay? So let's just, we're using the patois of the day. I'm not saying it because I'm stupid. I'm saying it because that was the patois of the time. It actually was even worse. And then Chief Seattle took a, a stick, his stick, and drew a tremendous circle that encompassed both of the other circles, and he said, this is what no one knows. And this is very important to me, and I, I want to share it uh, with you, we talked about the domains of knowledge on the previous podcast. We have what we know, what we personally know, what we personally know, what we have as a personal experience. And then we have what experts can tell us. And they often tell us things that we can't determine by ourselves through the use of the scientific method or through instruments like telescopes and microscopes and they give us data, and they give us a scientific method and its conclusions to help inform us about our lives. And then there's that world out there that we know nothing about. We, some of us believe it's out there. Of course, the scientists know that there's a limit to what has been discovered thus far, but the scientist believes that if they just keep working, just keep experimenting, just keep researching, all of the secrets of the universe will eventually become revealed. And that may be true. That, in fact, may be true. And that's where science and religion meets. Because when the scientists continue to research and they come into contact with that unknown knowledge, well, we don't know what they're going to come back with. But one of the points I made in the last uh, broadcast and was very clear to me over the weekend engaging in social media, just because somebody states a fact or something as a fact or presents data as data, you know, (laughs) I'm just not going to be so quick to accept it anymore because we're living in an era 
an era. And this is the critical part of, of, the, of this podcast's introduction. We come out of a time where there was something called the professional, the professional who would profess, who would profess to know more than the regular people. And we trusted the professionals, and these professionals were bound by the professional episode. They had a, an honor code, an honor code that determined their professionalism. One could say it was sacred honor. Certainly that's where it came from, was from the concept of sacred honor. And what's happened over the course of my lifetime is that the, uh, the influence of money has reached so far into these different professions. For example, the priesthood. And then maybe that's not money. Who knows what happened in the priesthood? But certainly the social compact between the the clergy and the lay people was violated over a long period of time and created a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. Lawyers, I'm going to tell a joke about lawyers later today. You know, lawyers, I mean, we, we as a culture don't respect the lawyers, which of course leads to a diminution of our respect for the rule of law because so many of them are so materialistic. They're in it for themselves. They're not in it to bring about truth and justice. So the professional you know, ethic of the lawyer has been impugned and has been degraded over time, and thus and so. So when we have um, information coming to us from sources that we can't confirm for ourselves, I'm just saying for myself personally, I'm becoming much more careful in how I'm consuming data, in how I'm consuming the opinions of experts, because they, we, we've got such polarization, even between experts, that we can't immediately just say, well, I'm going to disregard this one and I'm going to regard this one. I, you know, I look at both sides of it and sometimes I say, I've got to do the research for myself because I can't trust such diametrically opposed opinion from allegedly safe sources, PhDs, so to speak. You know, when two PhDs square off and there isn't a bit of agreement between them, we've got a problem that we have to solve. And we don't solve it by screaming at each other. We solve it by slowing down, taking the time to read and to listen and to learn, to try to come up with our own, our own personal, authentic response to the, to the information that we're, we're getting. And um, for the new people that are watching me, uh, I am uh, classically trained, uh, you know, in the intellectual tradition of my father. My father taught at the university for over 50 years. I went to a university. I was raised to be a scholar. I am educated. And for whatever reason, well, there is a reason. I know the reason. But since you're new here, there's no reason for me to go over it right this minute. But I rejected it. And, uh, you know, it was, had something to do with the time period. I'm not going to go into all of the personal. But just at the exterior... I was in the university at the, you know, during the Carter administration. It was during the Cold War, and we were on the verge of a nuclear holocaust all the time. And I started to think to myself, why do I want to do this? I'm a very good musician. I think I'm just going to play music. And I left, much to the consternation of my parents, and pursued a career in music for many years and was quite good at it. 
as a sidebar. Bill Crystal, I was involved in a uh, thread with him on X, and he said, I've never seen Taylor Swift and don't know her music, but I'm going to side with Taylor Swift and uh, over uh, whoever was criticizing her. And I thought to myself, Bill Crystal, your father was a noted academic. You're educated. Educated. How can you have an opinion about something that you've never researched or never experienced? That's just the opposite of being educated. That's, that's not educated. That's dumb. I went with my teenage daughters to a Taylor Swift concert. I experienced it. I, you know, I, I can have an opinion about it. Not that I want to share my opinion. My point is, if we're going to have opinions, let's base them on some study and not on regurgitating what somebody else has said because I don't trust the somebody else. And I'm going to tell you, if you're new, I'm not asking you to trust me. The point of the Professor Penn podcast is to encourage people to do their own research, to come up with their own findings, and to self-govern. Self-governance includes a a process of self-development. In fact, one could say, and I have said, the purpose of our entire enterprise here is to allow people to develop themselves in pursuit of life and liberty and happiness. It's kind of a self-development process. So I don't want to do anything to truncate that. I want to encourage it, and I don't expect you to agree with me, and I don't need you to agree with me. My request is is that we talk and learn from each other because, believe it or not, I will learn from you. It's not a one-way street. We're forming a community, and I will share as we get done with the preamble, that I was raised to be a scientist. And uh, I was raised by people who were not faithful. They did not believe in God. Uh, I'm not saying they didn't teach me about my traditions. I'm saying they they were secular humanist children of the hippie movement of the 60s. My father taught at the university. My mother was a an activist. She was involved in the Eugene McCarthy presidential campaign in 1968. She was a radical. She was a radical. My mother was on the front lines of the women's rights movement, and my father was on the front lines of the civil rights movement. I grew up in that environment. So, I mean, I was there, and my parents were not unimportant. They were major players in these movements, major national players. So I, I've seen this. I've been part of it. And something happened to me. In my late 20s, I got very ill. I was dying. As a matter of fact, I was dying. I had a fatal condition. And uh, in the middle of that fatal condition, and of course people will say I had a psychological need. You're damn right I had a psychological need. I was dying. But I was brought up as a Jewish person in the Jewish tradition. I had no iconology about Christ. I had no thinking of Christ, and Christ was actually spoke of disparagingly within the community I was raised, so there was a moment when Christ appeared to me that for me was very powerful because I had no faith, no history, no study, never read the New Testament, didn't know anything about it, and when Jesus Christ showed up, I said, wow, that's Jesus Christ. Didn't talk to me. It was an energy. Everyone has their own way of looking at this. But my response to it is as follows. And please, if you're new, stay with it. 
because the ideas are beautiful even if you don't have faith. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Something created the light and the dark. I'm thankful for it. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. And when I say that, I mean creativity, the ability for me to create art, music, writing, reading, thinking. I'm thankful that I have the creative spark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. America is a very special place with a very special intellectual and philosophical tradition. I'm very thankful that I'm in America. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Okay, so you don't believe God heals the sick. Well, we do have healing, and I'm very thankful for it. I thank for healing, my own healing. My own healing, I'm thankful. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Let us not take food for granted. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Hey, the heavens and earth came from somewhere. I'm just saying let's have gratitude. If we can't believe in a supreme creator, could we believe in gratitude and humility and peacefulness? These are good things to start with. That could unite all of the American people. Let's find the things we can agree on, like gentleness. There's a good one. Gentleness. These prayers are gentle. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Now, I know that some of you that are new could say, I'm making up some stories because I have fear. And that's true. If I can gain some psychological peace by believing that there's some meaning to my life, as opposed to my life has no meaning and it has no meaning that it has no meaning, you know, this is a, an issue that I find some solace in. I know the existential philosophical tradition of the 20th century, and I've just come to the point at this time in my life where I say, yeah, okay, there's something there. It just doesn't work very well for people when they believe that their life is meaningless and that meaningless has no meaning. That's a very dark place to work out of. And then I'm supposed to believe that my human relationships are the counterpoint to that meaninglessness and come on, let's be honest about human relationships. They come and they go. There are some that are very important. And if you, new to this podcast or my, my loyal listeners and followers, if you have one good friend, just one, one that you can depend on, one, you could be president of the United States. You need one person that you can trust. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for my American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. And that's a glory of self-governance, not the glory of sailing aircraft carriers all around the world to enforce Pax Americana with military prowess. That's not glorious. That's imperious. 
glory is having an intellectual tradition that draws people to ideas, not to people, but to ideas, like rights that are granted to me by a creator, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's a great idea. And there's many more, and we talk about them here on the Professor Penn Podcast. Most of them don't involve the idea of a creator. They involve very rational applications of political philosophy that we base our lives on. Rule of law. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Here's one that might upset some of the new people, but one of my listeners and viewers asked me to interject it. And in respect to that truth, I include, Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son to die on the cross that I might be saved. And we talk about that. I'm not a preacher. I'm just saying, how do we work ourselves out of the processes of degradation and depravity which we find ourselves in? Our society is obviously depraved. I mean, if you're here and you're on the left, talk about gun violence. How depraved is that? So the solution is to take away the guns. Great. It doesn't end the depravity. The depravity is still there. What are we going to do as an American community to heal the depravity? That's what we're trying to do here on this podcast as a community, discuss how we get down to really healing our culture so that it does what? What is my political philosophy before you click off? Because maybe this will keep you on. Everything I think about, everything I study, and everything we talk about here is aimed at enhancing the well-being of American citizens. Aimed at enhancing the well-being, the spiritual well-being, the emotional well-being, and the physical well-being of the people that live in the United States of America. What can I do? What research can I do? How can I impact people's lives such that their lives are healthier? That's why I'm doing this. That's why I'm here. And you're welcome to come back, and you're welcome to communicate with me. And please do. One of the things that I'm working on is the issue of sin in my own life. Sin. Now, this is something we all have to determine for ourselves if we're secular humanists. If we're people of the book, sin is well-defined. But the problem of sin, about feeling bad, that we fall short of our own mark. Well, hey, if you're watching me and you don't have that feeling, uh, that might be a psychological dysfunction. And I will say that to the Trump haters. When President Trump said he had nothing to feel sorry about, he's nothing he regretted, I didn't like that. I didn't like that. That is an anti-faith comment. We as human beings have feet of clay, all of us, our leaders, our technocrats, our doctors, our lawyers, our priests, our politicians, all of us have feet of clay, and we fall somewhat short. So I'm working with that in my own life and trying to encourage myself because I'm here with you. It, it is, I'm getting the greatest benefit. It's making me seek a higher standard, and it's really putting me through a psychological process of becoming. That's the great benefit for me when I say, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Pardon me, my King, for I have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. So 
what I'm saying to the non-believer. You can sit in the same room with the believer. We believe the same things, essentially. We just don't know how to talk to each other. And that's why we have a wonderful constitution that allows us to speak, that allows us to discourse with each other, that supports the kind of um, sharing of ideas and information that will lead to a, a new kind of thinking, a new, a, you know, the development of culture, evolution of culture, to form a more perfect union. That's what I seek with everybody in this audience. Now, I'm going to give you a blast here. This kind of thing costs money, and uh, we have a sponsor, TireGet.com. The reason we are involved with TireGet, in full disclosure, I'm involved with TireGet, I'm the owner, is I think it's a fantastic product that people need that can help them support this broadcast if they're so motivated to do. Everybody needs tires. We have every kind of tire. We got them at the right price. We got the service in your own backyard. It's all good. Major brands, premium private labels, it's all here. So please, let's just take a minute and take a look at TireGet, and thank you for your support if you decide to buy your tires at TireGet.com. Winter was late this year, boy, but it's it's arrived. We got snow everywhere. It's cold everywhere. Please be safe. If you're sliding around out there and you want to buy a new all-season tire or a winter tire, go to TireGet.com. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. It's a one-stop shop for all your tire needs. You got to buy your tires from someone. When you buy them from TireGet, you are funding the movement. We have great customer service. You call in, you email in. We'll contact you back. We'll make sure you get exactly the tire that you need. Not any more, not any less. Just right. We're here for you. Target.com. This is a great way to fund the movement. It's a great way to get the tires that you need. And we're going to do your service. So you pick your tire and we'll service the tires. We'll get them on your vehicle. That's T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. And thank you very much for listening. All right, welcome back. We got the soap selling out of the way. We got to do that. Uh, it's still winter, and uh, if you need a little help with your traction, give us a call. I'd like to help you myself. Let's get into the news that matters because, boy, there's a lot of news that matters. I couldn't see you last Thursday because we had a technical problem. I'm sorry, um, but I, I am posting clips and shorts, and uh, my producers tell me it's not being on time every time. It's about continuously getting out the volume of material and building an audience. I personally, the professor in me, which here's another thing, I'm not actually a professor. It's a stage name. But I've done a lot of teaching in my life. I've taught a lot of different disciplines. I've taught music. Uh, you know, I've taught hand-to-hand combat. I've taught a lot of different things. I've taught people how to make money. I've done a lot. And one of the things I like to do when I teach is I like to teach on time every time. So I apologize I wasn't um, up at 7.30 this past Thursday night. But, hey, you know, I'm not going to cry about it. Things happen. It's technology, and it's technology that's complicated. So I'm going to say as we get into the news, I'm going to do Tuesday night and Thursday night's news right now today. And who knows what's going to happen between 9.30 on Monday morning and Thursday night. The whole world may change. So please bear that in mind. The thing that really uh, caught my attention this past week was the things that are going on in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is reviewing 
a case that they've taken, they've given it what's called certiary. You know, people go to the court all the time and say, listen to my case, listen to my case, listen to my case. Well, the first step is to actually be admitted as a case. I mean, most of them don't get off the pad. Most of these rockets just die right on the pad. And the court has granted certiary to a case that may, in fact, be very powerful in its conclusion, that being the court is indicating a willingness to possibly start to rein in the power of the administrative and bureaucratic state. And this is a very powerful thing we need to watch. Um, I'm not going to fortune tell it, but the court is reviewing a case that would limit the power of agencies to determine administrative law. That's a big deal because what we're learning now, finally we're waking up here, uh, the American people, that, um, just let me have a drink. Hold up. Thank you because I'm going to say something that's a little bit troubling. I've come to the conclusion that a lot of our politics is somewhat uh, theater. It's kind of bread and circuses. The real act of governance is going on all the time through rule of law, through the administrative state, and through the legal process. So we don't uh, have a elected, an elective body with the kind of power that we're raised to believe it has. It's kind of a scam. And boy, people don't like it when I say that. But, it, you know, there's just this giant behemoth of a state out there that's doing things that, you know, the elected officials don't even enter into. And the court's taking that up, and that's really interesting. And then that was the biggest news of last week, and then all of a sudden this thing popped up in Texas where the uh, Texas government, um, the state government, had moved to protect the border of Texas from what they consider to be illegal immigration. And the Biden administration went to the Supreme Court for relief to um, prevent the state of Texas from interfering in the defense of the national border. And the Supreme Court, quite interestingly, sided with the federal government. So there's all of this um, talk on the left that the court is uh, very uh, conservative, very right. And we can see from this decision that, uh, you know, we really don't know what these jurists are going to do when they're nominated to the court. Actually, all, uh, let's see, it was Kagan, Comey, Barrett, Sotomayor, Katanji Brown, and Justice Roberts, Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, five votes voted to support the Biden administration's right to protect the border and against the state of Texas presumed right. And, uh, well, hey, guess what happened? The uh, state of Texas told the Supreme Court and the Biden administration to go bite a hog in the ass. And now 25 Republican governors have signed a joint letter of support for what they call the Texas resistance, and many of these states are actually sending National Guard units to the border in support of Texas. Uh, This would appear to be uh, the potential for a civil war. Uh, Elia, could you play number two, please? Play number two. Thank you very much. Texas is doing is just very simple, and, and, and that is because the Biden administration has really, truly abdicated its responsibility to secure the border, 
and enforce the laws. Texas, very simply, is securing the border. And so we put up the razor wire that you were talking about, Bill, and uh, we put up all these barricades that actually have denied illegal entry. Uh, and as you pointed out also in that screen, that there are criminals coming across our border. Texas has a right as a state to stop criminals from coming into our state, to make arrests of those criminals. Uh, and we have National Guard, as well as Texas Department of Public Safety officers who are there to make those arrests and to deny illegal entry. Mm -hmm. And Joe Biden actually does have an option here. Joe Biden's option is to enforce the laws of the United States and stop this illegal entry. Texas well, there you go. So we've got a, a potential constitutional crisis. Uh, I'm not going to fortune tell anything because all this stuff is unprecedented. I do know that President Biden on two occasions has said that uh, groups that would oppose the government need to have F-16s. That's my president. So he was basically threatening the state of Texas or any individual that wanted to put up resistance to the administrative state into the current regime, the Biden administration, that they, they better have, you know, supersonic fighters with nuclear weapons, which I thought was, you know, a little bit overkill. That's just me speaking. I'd like to dial back the comments on all sides that polarize the American people and make us hate ourselves and hate each other. Because, you know, if we hate each other, it's really we hate ourselves. To the extent we hate each other, we hate ourselves. To the extent we can hate each other, we have hatred for ourselves. Because that, that antagonist out there that we hate is a reflection of me. I hate myself. That's why I hate you. So if I'm going to love myself, I'm going to have less space to hate my fellow citizens, the people in my own family. This is not to say that we cannot defend ourselves against foreign invasion. Let me just say, you know, my body, bacteria and viruses, hey, I have skin and immune system to prevent these viruses and from these bacteria from killing me. This is the natural way. So the natural way includes self-defense. But when we hate the people in our own family, in our own American community, at this degree, it's self-hatred that's being expressed also. And why don't we work on loving ourselves, and maybe some of this intra-country hatred which is building up will start to alleviate. Of course, I think uh, my own opinion is when I'm on X and I'm watching all these people do such a great job of using emotional triggers and labeling and fortune-telling and emphasizing the negative, cognitive distortion after cognitive distortion, which are all intended to create emotional responses instead of intellectual responses, to drive people into their animal selves so that they, so that they respond in a less than, high, less than their highest level of, of, of analysis and, and behavioral outcome, that's not very nice. So please stop. If you're educated, you know, like Rick Wilson, he's, he's educated, he's, he's got a super sharp wit, and he's just inflammatory constantly. And why? Do you hate me that much that you have to inflame me? Couldn't we talk to each other in a very erudite and educated fashion and put on for all of our fellow citizens the depth of our study and knowledge? 
I'm going to ask all the, the uh, and I've done this before, and if you're new, please go back. 1984, the debate between uh, Walter Mondale and Ronald Reagan. Look at the level of discourse and the respect. It's, it's, our, it's, it's our right to have that. We don't have to hate ourselves and each other. So with all this Sturm and Drang at the border, we got another thing going on concomitantly. It's, it's interesting. All this is happening at once. If you remember, if you remember, the Congress got blocked on, on passing more deficit spending to support the war in the Ukraine by the Ukrainians against the Russians and the Israeli issue, the, the Gazan issue. They couldn't pass more appropriations because the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, and the conservatives in the House said, nope, we're not going to go get involved in other people's wars when our own border is open. And that kind of shocked the political class because who these people who are, you know, labeled as extremists actually have power, and they exercise it. They said, no, we're not going to give you any more money to kill people unless we clean up our own border. And immediately, up jumps a bunch of folks in the Senate, and they came up with the border bill, the Schumer-Langford border bill. And I, it's just, these people, I mean, these people have been in the Senate, for some have been there for 40 years. All of a sudden, they got a border bill. Elliot, could you please play number three? Meanwhile, back here in Washington, a bipartisan group of senators are trying to salvage a very fragile deal to overhaul our nation's immigration laws and provide more funding for Ukraine. CBS's Scott McFarlane reports there are concerns that Donald Trump is trying to kill the deal to help win an election. A month-long negotiation to bolster the U.S. border is on life support. In a closed-door meeting yesterday, Republican leader Mitch McConnell warned Donald Trump might want to make immigration a campaign issue, threatening GOP support for any deal. On day one, I will seal the border and I will shut down the invasion of our country. It's an invasion. The idea that, that someone running for president would say, please hurt the country so I can blame my opponent and help my politics is a, uh, uh, a shocking uh, uh, development. Senators are trying to save their effort to overhaul immigration law, which would also pump tens of billions of dollars into Ukraine for its war against Russia. We are negotiating in good faith and want to get this done in a bipartisan way. Will Trump have the ability to kill this immigration deal? Well, I think there's not a deal to be killed yet. South Carolina's Lindsey Graham says he's urging Trump to get behind the border negotiations, which he says are ongoing tonight. I will say to President Trump, if we can put this package together, you'll have more tools to secure America than you've ever had. Among proposals being discussed, making it easier to expel migrants when border crossings spike and raising the requirements to claim asylum in the U.S. Hanging in the balance, emergency money to help Ukraine replenish its weapons and equipment as the Biden administration says the Pentagon has run out of money for Ukraine. We have the Ukrainian aid. It's, it's vulgar and evil that, that anyone would turn our backs now on, on Ukraine right now. But that's also facing resistance from some Trump allies. Is there a risk the Ukraine money falls apart too? That the Ukraine component also gets killed? Oh, here? I hope so, because I don't, I don't like that either. We spent the day trying to determine if Trump was trying to kill this border deal. And moments ago, he eliminated any suspense in a statement saying a border deal is a gift 
to Democrats. JB? Scott McFarland on Capitol Hill. Well, I just want to make a couple of comments about this. Um, there's an old saying, if you want to see the snakes move, beat the grass. These people are all interested in this border deal, not because they give a hoot about the border. And that's because, first of all, they haven't published the language. But the rumor, the rumor is that the Schumer-Langford border deal will allow 5,000, they call them migrants, they're illegal immigrants to the country, to come into the country every day. That's 1.8 million people a year. That's the workaround. Up to 2 million people, hey, we're good. We need 2 million people coming in. You know, this is not a deal. This is codifying the current situation. It's a scam. Now, what Trump has done is Trump has come out and said, it's a bad deal. And because he is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party, the snakes are getting kind of nervous about it. So they're trying to cut a deal to get this border thing handled so they can get to the cash for the Ukraine. Because fun in that war is their number one goal. And, of course, here's what CBS says. They have the young Senator Josh Hawley out there, and they say he's a Trump supporter. That has nothing to do with being anti-war. As a matter of fact, I remember in the 60s and 70s, in the very leftist family that I grew up in, everybody on the left was anti-war. In fact, anti-war was the coalescing factor of the entire leftist movement. And what war were they trying to oppose? They were trying to oppose the war that the military-industrial complex was constantly getting into with the Russians. They were anti-nuclear. They were anti-intervention in Vietnam. They were anti-war. They were anti-killing. They were anti the whole program. Yet here they are on the front lines. Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer worked. It's called the Schumer-Langford Border Bill. Chuck Schumer worked with my mother on Eugene McCarthy's anti-war presidential campaign in 1968. Yet in one lifetime, he's gone from being anti-war in Vietnam to pro-war in the Ukraine. Nice job, Senator Schumer. Tell me how you can do that. Because while I've moved from a very far leftist position in my own life to a completely new ground that's about human well-being, I haven't given up my roots as being anti-war. I just haven't. So all you anti-war liberals, I hope you're, all you liberals that are tuning in to see what kind of animal is Professor Penn, I want to remind you that your parents, they were probably Republicans, and you've probably revolted against them. Who knows? But I'm going to tell you for a fact, for a fact, that the Democrat Party, the modern Democrat Party, its rut, its rut, was in opposition to the military-industrial complex. Stop. Full stop. That's what defined it. That's what brought people together into the movement. Subsequently, civil rights was grafted in. Women's rights was grafted in. Uh, gay rights was grafted in. Many other human rights movements were grafted in. But what coalesced that movement and made it a movement was anti-war. And, you know, you can have another opinion. And if you were there, I'll pay attention to you. If you read it in a book, I'm going to tell you I was there. I was there when my father was beaten by the security state because he was the leader of the anti-war movement. So please be careful how you talk about this because I have a memory, a memory. So this bill has been 
fenced out there as a way to get to the cash to kill people. That's great. Good. Trump has said the bill's no good. And immediately the media said he's trying to destroy this effort to fix the border because he's trying to maintain the border as a campaign issue. That could be true. That could be false. I'm not in his head. I'm not a fortune teller. And he may even have said things along that line. And that's fine. The net result is that today, this day, the 29th of January, the Congress can't spend money that we don't have to kill people in Europe and to escalate that conflict. Great. I don't care how their hands get tied. Tie their hands. Put your hands in your pockets, globalists. Put your hands in your pockets. There's no money for killing. We have people here in our country that are suffering, that both the left and the right agree upon, need our love. We have well-being to enhance here in the United States before we go kill people in other countries. How about we start with the well-being of the American people? If you're new to the podcast, that's where I'm coming from. I don't think my well-being is found in fighting the Russians in Europe. I think that's a scam. Don't like it. I think my well-being is found in getting into the community here in Minneapolis and improving the lives of the citizens of the city of Minneapolis. I think that's a good thing we could be doing together. Let me just do one reaction video on this because I think it's hilarious. Could you please play number four? So there is one issue on the minds of voters in Iowa and New Hampshire that might surprise you given the location of both of these states in a map of the United States. More than a third of Iowa caucus goers last weekend said immigration was the most important issue to them. Again, that's Iowa, which is over a thousand miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. I think it's safe to say that those scary migrant caravans everyone speaks about, specifically Trump and others, won't exactly be reaching the homes of Iowa Republicans anytime soon. But guess what? Fox News sure will. There may be a connection there. Now, take a listen to what some voters told me here in New Hampshire just last night. What are the biggest issues that you focus on as you're trying to make your decision in the next couple of days? I guess, like a lot of other people, the economy and definitely the border, meaning the southern border and the northern border, being in New Hampshire, right? Is the border one of your a top issues oh, for you? Absolutely. And what worries you the most about the border? Um, well, it's, a, it's everything. I mean, the fentanyl coming in, the fact that um, we've got all these illegal, you know, you don't know who's coming across that border. You don't know how many terrorists. Now, presumably, given how much voters care about these issues, leading Republicans who run the country, who want to run the country again, let's say, would be eager to find a solution to this issue, right? I mean... There's a deal being currently worked on in the Senate right now. Senate Republicans have been working on a bipartisan package that includes increased border security, something they say they want, and new funding also for Ukraine. It's definitely imperfect, this bill. But just sticking with the Republican electorate here, lots of Republican leaders are out there saying this deal is basically as good as it's ever going to get. To those who think that if President Trump wins, which I hope he does, that we can get a better deal. You won't. When the bill is released and everyone, particularly conservatives and President Trump, sees the tools that will be available to a President Trump should he win the election, to lose this opportunity to get it passed into law, I think is malpractice. 
Some people say, oh, well, I mean, Biden wants it now because it's helpful to him politically. Okay, I want border security. That's that's what I that's what I told my constituents that I would do for them. So if we can get that deal, that's that's enough branch. Dan Crenshaw, Lindsey Graham, Tom Tillis, three very conservative Republicans, not exactly members of the liberal caucus here. They're all saying this is a no brainer. But of course, there is just one big problem. The president actually uh, just got off the phone with me right before the show, and he said he has spoken to you about this deal and that he is against it, and he urged you to be against this deal. He was extremely, President Trump was extremely adamant about that. Um, your reaction to that, given the fact that, look, he already, he knows how to do this enforcement stuff. You don't need some new bill coming out of the, uh, the Senate to get the border enforced. Yeah, President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him the uh, night before last about the same subject. There it is. You can always rely on Mike Johnson, by the way, to take direction from his boss, Donald Trump, when necessary. But we all know the real reason Trump wants to tank this deal. He doesn't actually care about solving the problem at the border. He wants the problem. He wants the issue to run on because it is the fear-mongering, the scare tactics that he is betting on to excite his voters and his base. Look, the border is broken. The immigration system is outdated, hasn't been updated in decades. And yes, this deal is far from perfect. But if Trump is successful in tanking this deal, Democrats should not let voters forget it. Because Trump's fear-mongering about immigration, his constant drumbeat about the border, will continue all the way until, the, until November. It's probably going to get worse. And voters will need to be reminded that Republicans had a chance to actually do something about the border security, something many of them wanted to do. And Donald Trump wouldn't let them. Ha, ha, ha. Tom Tillis, Lindsey Graham, and Dan Crenshaw are conservatives. And the moon is made out of blue cheese. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? My reaction is, hey, if you are a moderate Republican and you think that at the end of the day you have a home with these people, they're just going to come for the quote-unquote mega people first and then they're going to take you down. Because calling Lindsey Graham a conservative or Dan Crenshaw conservative is really laughable. It's just a theater. It's political theater. It's theater. These people don't care about the border. They care about the military-industrial complex for whom they are shilling. And I want to say one other thing, and I hope Tanner, when he makes this into a short, can get the job done. And they drew that, that line, that 1,000 miles between the border and Iowa. Well, let me tell you, I live in Minnesota, which is another 500 miles. And the next-door house to my house, the next door, next door, like I can hit it with a rock. There's 20 illegal immigrants living in that house right next door to me here in Minneapolis-St. Paul. I'm not here to comment on them as people. I don't know them. I never see them because they hide in that house. I've never one time, how do I know they're there? There's 20 cars parked there. I mean, I... I mean, they don't come out and socialize. I see them come and go. They don't socialize. They will not respond to a knock on the door. 
Some slumlord has rented out the house to all these people and is taking advantage of them. So to say that it doesn't have an impact here, 1,500 miles away in Minnesota, is just untrue. It's right in my neighborhood. It's right next door to me. And I'm not saying I'm threatened by these people. I don't know them. They will not interact with me. But I do know they're there, and I presume they're there illegally because how often do 20 people live in the same little house? It's right next to my house. I know it's a little house. I can see it with my own eyes. I don't have to listen to Jan Saki tell me that there's nothing going on. I see it for myself. And, of course, now we got to get down to the biggest news, the big news, the big news. Three U.S. service people, domiciled in Jordan, were horribly killed. Now, I know I put the big drum roll on and then I got serious because three lives were ended. Three American citizens died in Jordan at the hands of I don't know who, because whoever they tell me it is, I got to take their word for it, and I don't take their word for it because it's a war, and in war, subterfuge is part of the game. But I think there's agreement that three soldiers died, three American citizens died, and now we're here waiting for the response. So by Thursday night, maybe nothing will have happened, or maybe we'll be at war with Iran. I don't know, but it's on the edge. And from my view of it or how I'm looking at it, I see a military strategy. I see Israel destroyed the Iranian proxy Hamas in the south. I'm watching Israel prepare to go to war with Hezbollah, the Iranian proxy in the north in Lebanon. I'm watching the United States bomb in Syria, Iranian proxies. I'm watching Operation Prosperity Guardian in the Red Sea bomb the Houthis, another Iranian proxy. And when all these proxies have been beaten down, what's next? What's next? And it seems to me, it just seems to me, as we're, we've got evidence we're going to be showing here quite, quite soon, that we're heading to a war with Iran. So it made me ask myself, who are the Houthis? Who are the Houthis? Elliot, could you please play number five? watch that and I go, boy, I wonder if that video's the real deal. Because I could see that it would be easy to doctor up something like that to create an effect. I don't know. It looked like 
tens of thousands of people united in a chant against the little Satan Israel in the great Satan the United States. It looks quite threatening. looks very threatening. It looks quite foreign and alien to my sensibilities as an American citizen living here in 2024. It looks uh, threatening, as it was intended to look. So I have to ask myself, who are the Hooties? Because we're bombing them and killing them every day, and it gets not a lot of coverage on our media. But every night, if you take a look at the CENTCOM website, not every night, but frequently, and if it's not the United States, it's Great Britain, and if it's not Great Britain, it's one of the other coalition partners. There's about 20 countries that have come together to form what's called Operation Prosperity Guardian. That's Prosperity Guardian. Because where's the prosperity? It's in the ships that are going through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, delivering hard goods to the European market. That's somebody's prosperity. Not mine. Probably not yours. Somebody's getting rich on it, and you and I are paying for it because we're paying our tax dollars to keep the U.S. military in that Red Sea and it's mostly the U.S. military, mostly. I got thinking to myself, what's the history of Yemen? What is the history of the Houthis? Who are these people? I think it started when I was on with uh, uh, Royce White on a show, and he said, Houthis and the Blowfish. I said, boy, that's funny. But these people don't seem funny. They seem rather serious. And I looked back, and what did I find? What did I find? What a shock. There was no Yemen. Yemen is a constructed country. And who constructed it? Well, that would be the British Empire. It was actually, that area was called South Arabia, and it was actually administered as part of the Indian colony of the British for hundreds of years. And nobody really cared about this part of the world because it's, you know, it's a sandbox. Now, I'm not saying there isn't an economy there, there's not people there, but it was, it was a relatively unimportant spot in the world where traditional people that were, is, you know, Islamic people, uh, both you know, Sunnis and Shia, had lived in relative harmony in a tribal structure for thousands of years, thousands of years. And uh, they had limited ambition because they were faithful, so their ambition was to be, at least their cultural imperative was to be faithful. I'm not saying that human nature has changed somehow. I'm sure we had very ambitious and skullduggerous characters throughout all of the history of this region. But it was a traditional culture with a traditional religion, without modern weaponry, without modern forms of politics. It was a tribal structure, and it functioned at whatever level it functioned. I'm sure there was all kinds of infighting and people getting killed like the you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys for hundreds of years. But it was low level because they didn't have the weaponry to create chaos. And they were living at survival level because they're living in a very inhospitable environment. And then what happened? Well, what happened was the British and I think the French were involved also. I, I don't know the history. I need to go back and look at it. They dug the Suez Canal. They dug the Suez Canal. And suddenly the Red Sea and the mouth to the Red Sea, which on the eastern side is South Arabia, Southern Arabia, became very strategically important. Very important. So 
of course, the Ottomans, the Ottoman Empire, that's the Turks, they came in and occupied the northern part of what's now called Yemen. And the Turks were at war with the British. It was two empires fighting for control of the Middle East. And the southern part of Yemen, the port of Aden, which is right at the mouth of the Red Sea, actually was occupied by the British military. And they set up an actual colony there, or an actual occupied territory. And the British set about with a very small garrison of people, setting these different tribal groups against each other. And in the northern region, which had been occupied by the uh, Ottomans, by the Turks, you had the House of Saud there, which was allied with the British. And what brought their alliance together was the oil business. And they came down into the northern Yemeni area, or the northern part of southern Arabia, and they started becoming politically active and arming groups. And they armed two groups in the north. One was a monarchist group, and the other one was a Republican group. You know, these are two Western ideas. They were not tribalist groups. They were tribes that were incorporated into a monarchical, into a Republican kind of political thinking and backed by the Saudis in an effort to, you know, create chaos with the Ottoman Turks. And actually, the Ottoman Turks were expelled after World War I because the Ottoman Empire came to its end and was defeated as part of the World War I conclusion. So the Turks withdrew out into the northern part of that country. And that battle between the monarchists and the Republicans continued, funded by the Saudis. And in southern Yemen, or southern South Arabia, we had the British actually in there. And of course, what rises up against the British is Marxism. So here comes these traditional religious tribes, and suddenly they get infiltrated by a Marxist element because that is in stark contradiction and that was the prevailing anti-crown currency of the day. It was the anti-crown currency of the day all over Europe. The crowned princes and kings and queens of Europe, in alliance with the church, were opposed by the Marxists. And that worked its way right into Yemen. Of course, there was many other factors. And then, of course, the, the, the Egyptians that went all in on this kind of socialism, anti-religious socialism, didn't last. These cultures have gone back to their previous religious roots, but at this time, after World War I and into the World War II period and after World War II, you had this growing pan-Arab movement was led by an Egyptian president, strongman, a man named Nasser, and he was allied with the Russians, allied with the Russians, another group. See, now, now you see where it comes from, right? This Marxism, the Soviet Union, at war with the British Empire since 1805. So you see the roots of all this trouble goes back way to the way back. It goes back, and that's why we're going to talk about trauma, colonialism, the trauma of colonialism. And we see it on full display here in Yemen because by using the House of Saud in northern southern Arabia, the British were able to keep a bunch of tribal groups killing each other. And in South Arabia, the British were opposed by Soviet-backed Marxists who they beat down and fought and killed and executed and tortured. And they basically uh, turned all these groups against each other. It was kind of a Twitter in its time. Nobody could talk to each other. Everybody hated each other. 
And they, you know, exacerbated two groups, Democrats and Republicans. Oh, no, no, excuse me. It wasn't Democrats and Republicans. It was Sunnis and Shias and their tribal affiliations. It's a little bit, you know, I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here about how I think about this. Because this hatred that we see on X, this is not organic. It's paid for. Because our elite, educated professors on the payroll of the governments have figured out how to make people hate themselves and hate each other. And one of the labs where this was worked on, because we didn't always know how to do this as a people. You know, we used to hate each other organically. Now we hate each other scientifically. That's a big advance, isn't it? Isn't that great? Isn't that cool? We know how to make people hate themselves scientifically. What an advancement in the technology of well-being. If I sound a little bit uh, sarcastic, it's because I am. And this went on, all this hating and, and fighting, and it just went on and on. But what ended up happening is the British got exhausted. They got exhausted at, world, at the end of World War II, and they had to start to draw back from their colonial empire, not the least of which was because President Roosevelt, a leftist, and I want to say this to, if you're a leftist watching for the first time, hey, I'm not bound up by these ideologies. President Roosevelt forced the British to give up their empire in exchange for the support of the United States of the British against the Germans. It was called the Atlantic Charter. So the British, exhausted and having signed a document which gave self-determination to all peoples, announced in the 1960s that they were going to withdraw to this region. And in fact, they did in about 1967. And then everything went to hell in a handbasket. Because what we've done here now, when I say we, because the Anglo Empire became the Anglo-American Empire because we took it over, dummies that we are. So if you're watching me for the first time, one of my theories is, is that we the people, the American people, and I went to a great East Coast school, and I'm educated in the European intellectual tradition, but our country was a repudiation of that tradition and of the British business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. And here we are defending the British business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy, which is a little bit hard to see in Yemen because Yemen was not developed to extract wealth from. It was just occupied to protect the passage of wealth from Asia through the Red Sea through the Suez Canal, to get to Europe. So what the British did is it just scrambled this egg and made everybody hate everybody else and create a complete mess, which continues to this day. And if you go back and look at the history of Yemen, which you can find on Wikipedia, there was one war, one war after another. The North's fighting the South. The Northern groups are fighting the Northern groups. The Southern groups are fighting the Southern groups. There's assassinations, coups. Everybody's buying weapons from who? From the United States and from Britain. It is a giant mess, a giant mess, which continued up to the period of the Arab Spring. And in that moment of uncertainty in the Arab Spring, up pops the Houthis. And who are the Houthis? The Houthis are a Shiite, Muslim, fundamentalist, Islamicist group on the payroll of the Iranians. Because the Iranians said, wow, Look at all this effort the British and the Americans are putting into defending the passageway to the Suez Canal. I bet we can screw this up. 
We just have to find some fundamentalist crazies that are willing to die for the cause, arm them, and then set them loose on the great Satan. And that's exactly what they've done. The Houthis don't even control the entire country of Yemen, but the areas that, con- that they control give them the ability to interdict shipping through the Red Sea. And this is pissing off the money. It's pissing off the money. You know, you can do anything you want to, but don't step on my blue suede shoes and never screw with the money. There's certain things that will get you killed. Stealing a man's money and stealing his wife could get you killed. Back in the old day was when, you know, masculinity was toxic. And if you take a look at this weaponry that's over there, it looks pretty toxic and masculine to me. It really does. So the United States and the British and about 20 allied countries are bombing these hooties every night, degrading their ability to wage war. The Israelis are degrading the ability of Hamas to wage war. They're about to start on Hezbollah. And when all these Iranian proxy groups are degraded, the chance, the likelihood of a general war in the Middle East aimed at the Iranians is very high. And because these three American soldiers were killed by one of these groups, or perhaps even by the Iranians themselves, I don't know, and I wouldn't believe what they told me. The fact is they died, and maybe by Thursday night when we're in the live chat together, our country will be at war with Iran. I don't know. We're on that edge while we watch Taylor Swift enjoy a championship football game, while we get high and spend our time in Netflix and on social media. The country's on the verge of a major war. And that is what I really want to oppose. If you're here for the first time, we want citizen engagement. We, this community, believes in self-governance that all of us can find a way to get involved in the political process so that our will is part of the equation for whatever outcome we vote or for whatever outcome our wills bring forth. And I just want to study or just talk about, and I did study it, along these lines, Jamaica, because Jamaica was also a British colony. And it was a British colony of a different nature. It was a British colony where we can really see the business model of the United States of America, where it comes from, because it comes from the British. And it comes from the British Darwinist business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. And sometimes you have to look at a, another case. You know, here, I mean, I did a lot of research on this, And I read all this, and my conclusion is the British messed up these two countries really good. And guess who else was a British colony? That'd be the United States of America. And guess what dominates all of our mm, academic institutions? That'd be the European intellectual tradition. So we got divorced. We got divorced from these people in 1776. And like any kind of a bad relationship, that spouse just wouldn't let us go. Worked their way back into our heads, and here we're stuck with the same European colonial business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy, which we can see it so clearly in Jamaica. We can see it so clearly in Jamaica, a pirate economy. You know, when you say piracy, 
well, let's just call piracy in the modern sense the military. Because what we didn't know is these pirates were oftentimes, many times, on the payroll of the British crown because it was a way for the crown to attack the Spanish without the Spanish being able to say, hey, we were just attacked by the British. No, they were pirates in big boats with weapons of war. I mean, how does a common criminal end up with a boat with cannons? And I'm going to tell you, that would be called the security state. So we had a, 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 an economy in Jamaica that actually had, under English rule, it was a haven for what was called privateers, buccaneers, and outright pirates, the most famous of which was Henry Morgan. If you're an alcoholic or you like your alcohol, you probably know Henry Morgan because, you know, that's what he left us was uh, some liquor. So they, they actually had their own port, Port Royale, where these brigands, these buccaneers and privateers and pirates were domiciled on the payroll of the crown to go harass the shipping of the Spanish. In fact, originally, the British viewed Jamaica as a relatively uninteresting piece of real estate, except for they called it a dagger at the heart of the Spanish Empire. So now we're seeing that this European conflict goes back a long way. So they had the piracy piece going here. Well, what was the drug piece? It didn't take them too long to figure out that they could grow sugarcane successfully in Jamaica. And if you don't know it, you don't know it. If you do know it, I don't have to tell you. Sugar is a drug. It has a a drug-like effect in our bodies when we consume it. And in fact, it's addictive. We get addicted to consuming sugar. So the economy of Jamaica, which was protected by pirates and became interested in drugs, the, the growing of sugar cane and the refining of the sugar, which is a drug, was then done by what? Slaves, British slaves. The growth of slavery The oppression of the enslaved African in Jamaica is considered by contemporary scholars to be among the most brutal in the history of the world. Punishment heaped on enslaved African populations by white enslavers included forcing, listen to this, this is gross, but I want to just talk about trauma. We're talking about intergenerational trauma now. Think of how traumatizing this is and how this will be passed through the history of mankind. One of the most popular tortures included forcing one enslaved person to defecate into the mouth of another enslaved person and then gagging the victim for several hours and forcing them to swallow it, a practice that was had a name. It was called Derby's Dose. There was constant floggings and whippings, whippings, to the point of the loss of life. These Africans were pickled. They were pickled. And what was that? They were whipped until there was open wounds, and then they were placed in a vat of salt and banana peppers. This was also called Derby's Dose. There was hangings by the feet, gang rapes, brandings on the forehead. It was extraordinarily barbarous. In fact, in 1739, a British 
uh, commentator and visitor to the island, a man named Charles, Charles Leslie wrote that, no, this is a quote, no country excels in a barbarous treatment of slaves or in the cruel methods they put them to death more than in Jamaica. Unbelievable. In 1673, there was nearly 8,000 white colonizers in Jamaica and over 9,000 Africans kept there by slavery. 1673, think about how long ago that is. By 1778, the population of enslaved Africans passed 200,000, and by 1800, it had increased to over 300,000. It was a classic place to study the British business model of slavery, drugs, and piracy. And what does Yemen, Jamaica, and the United States of America all have in common? What is the common denominator between our countries? And that would be we were all colonies of the crown, all three countries. So we can readily see the horror in, in Yemen, which was just a geopolitical chip in the board. All they did was get the local population to kill each other. And when I say they, that would be the British. And whereas in Jamaica, which was a little bit different, they actually had wealth to extract from Jamaica, so they imported a very large population of slaves, exploited them, traumatized them, destroyed their cultures, destroyed their self-images, extracted wealth in the trillions, and then eventually withdrew, leaving behind a classic European battle between a conservative group led by a man named Bustamante, who represented the planters and the landowners, and a family named Manley, who were classic Marxists. So they left behind a governing uh, tradition that was purely European to govern a population that had become overwhelmingly African and didn't even admit of those Marxist and uh, imperialist uh, forms of governance. In fact, the strongest movement on the island at one time in the 650s and 60s and 70s was the Rastafarian movement, which gave birth to Bob Marley, and that was an Old Testament, an Abrahamic religion, which indicates to me that some of these slaves or many of these slaves that were imported by the British actually had some kind of tie to the nation of Israel. Because if you listen to Bob Marley's music, it's Jewish. And how do I know that? Because I know Bob Marley's music well, and I'm Jewish. So I know the rhythms and the melodies and the tonalities and the language. It's Old Testament with some New Testament thrown in. And that was suppressed. In fact, Bustamante in the 1960s said, bring me every Rastafarian dead or alive. So, you know, we've, the British left a, a, a mess in Jamaica, and it's still a mess to this day. It's still messy down there, still poor. And um, weren't you just in Jamaica? Elliot shaking his head. Is it still poor down there? Shaking his head, yes. It's poor. Development has left Jamaica behind. But let me tell you, let's not, let's not get too upset about it because Jamaica, and I've been there many times, 
You can live out in nature in Jamaica. So these are the happiest poor people I've ever known. They're not modernized. They live at subsistence level in harmony with nature, and they're happy about it, many of them. People live in caves. They live in the forest, just like a group called the Maroons, who were a group of slaves that escaped slavery and went into the Blue Mountains and waged a 100-year campaign against the British, and the British couldn't defeat them because they were great warriors and they used um, asymmetrical warfare and they harassed and maintained their freedom and independence, and they were never put down. So these are people that lived in harmony with nature as warriors, and that's part of the Jamaican tradition. So why have I taken this trip through uh, Yemen and Jamaica? Well, one, we're at war with the Houthis. We, we the American people, our money is going to kill these people, and they might get lucky and kill our people. So at least let's know who they are, a Shia Muslim group under the, uh, pay, on the payroll of the Iranians, and let's know why they exist. They exist because the traditional culture of South Arabia was destroyed in a colonial enterprise that was orchestrated by the British so that a handful of British, a small garrison of British soldiers, could control access to the Red Sea. So to get that money from, from Asia through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal, into Europe, for the traders to get that, that profit, they destroyed a traditional culture. And now we're getting what's called blowback. This is blowback because we, the people, in our stupidity, took on the trappings of the Anglo Empire. We made it the Anglo-American Empire because this is, the, the, you know, we're defending the Suez Canal here. That's what. We're defending an organization of the world set up by the British. We're working for the British, and we don't even know it. That's how dumb we are. That's how dumb we are. So when our elected leaders can't wait to fund the Ukrainians, we're funding a British war that's gone back to 1805. What does it have to do with me? My statement is zero. Let the British fight their own wars. I want to take care of the people in my own neighborhood. I don't need and do not have the ambition to run the Anglo empire for a failed empire. I would like my country not to fail. And that's what I'm asking you to join uh, the Professor Penn podcast. Leave comments. Tell me what you think. If you're new, you know, I'm not afraid to talk to you. Click the like button if you like it. Subscribe. Please go to X and follow me. Let's get together and hash these things out and get some great dialogue going. We don't need to sit in a stew pot like these poor people in Yemen hating each other. We still have a culture that's working. Let's make it work before it's too late. Let us not forget the trauma suffered by the Jamaicans and recognize that the British pursued the same enslavement here in the United States of America and recognize that this trauma is intergenerational. I've said on the podcast many times, I'm a child of the Holocaust. I was born in the 50s. I suppose two-thirds of my family was killed in Europe in the, in the gas chambers or killed you know, by, the, by the Nazis and in some cases by Ukrainians. You know, they were killed. I know their stories. 
I was born in the 50s. My father was traumatized. My mother was traumatized. Their cousins were killed. My grandparents were traumatized. Their brothers and sisters was, were killed. And that traumatization was passed to me, and it led to anxiety and sleeplessness and emphasis of the negative and fortune-telling and all kinds of dysfunction that I've had to try to work out, and I'm continuing to try to work out through the course of my life. And the greatest thing that that war did and that these traumas do is it breaks people's faith in God. Because what kind of God would create a world with such terrible suffering? And so the existentialists came along and the postmodernists came along and they said, well, obviously there's no God. Because if there is a God, God's terrible. And that has taken root in our culture and we've, we've lost, as a culture, as a people, we've lost access to that third domain of knowledge, which I talk about in the last podcast. We know what we know. We know what somebody tells us. But that other world, that great world that's undiscovered, that we know is there, or most of us know is there, but we don't have access to it, we no longer have access to it. The door is being closed by elitists in our academic institutions who have concluded for me and for my children that there is no God. And that's what they teach me, and that's what they teach my children. And because I have a religious background in my own family, I was able to keep that door open for myself, and I'm hoping to keep that door open for those of you in this audience that have some interest in studying and discovering those issues here today in 2024. But it's really about trauma. I mean, we traumatize each other. We traumatize our children. I'm a traumatized child. And I've said this, and I, I have my own children, uh, you know, uh, listen to my podcast, and they're quick to remind me of my shortcomings as a, as a parent. And uh, I wish I could parent them now because it would be a much better job. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, we do is um, we parent when we're young before we've worked out our own trauma. So we pass it along, and we could just each one of us a little bit rein it in. And I've been around people, and we've all tried to rein it in somewhat, but we, we really don't know what we're doing. We're kids. And we get older, and then we claim, oh, we know what we're doing. Now nah, we really don't know what we're doing. I mean, I, I know that many people come to me, and they go, well, you know, you seem to know what you're doing, Professor Penn. No, I want to say, I'm shooting my best shot. And I'm trying to work inside myself without a lot of fortune telling, with, without a great surety about what's going to work and what's going to work, yes and no, and even what to work. That's why we need to have a dialogue. Because so, so much change has happened so quickly over the short period of time in the last hundred years, we're kind of confused about... Uh, what we're going to do here. And I mean intellectually, you know, at a relatively sophisticated level of dialogue and discourse. So while I'm not sure about many things, I am sure that by working on my own personal conduct, that by refining my own energy and making better behavioral choices myself, I can improve the world. And that's something that I'm focused on, and I do it with you very revealingly here, and I do it within the context of people lying constantly, constant, just constant lying. I just point out a quick one. 
I, I'm, I'm watching, you know, this uh, stuff that's going on uh, about our economy. And we're so focused on our economy. In other words, materialism. And so what is being touted by our mainstream media press and our alternative press and by our government? The economy's growing at a 3.3% annual clip. It's just a lie. Our economy is not growing. What's growing is the money supply and inflation. And, you know, if you've studied and you understand economics and you understand the business world, you'd know that you're just being lied to. You wouldn't be insulted. You'd just say artifice. You're just lying to me. But there's so many people that don't understand economics. They haven't studied it. They've never played the game. And they just grab whatever the propaganda is, and they spew it forth, and then the pure, the poor, unsuspecting youth of our country think, oh, life's good. And then, you know, they're going to go out, we're going to go out here as a culture, as an economy, and one day the ass is going to fall off the donkey. Let me say this again because people like it. The ass will certainly fall off the donkey, and the economy will fall apart, and we'll be poor, and we'll all wonder what happened. They told us everything was grande vuvu. And it's not. It's just not. And that's another thing we try to do here. We try to search for truth. We're in the search for truth. We're trying to point out the lies and the contradictions and just say very plaintively, we're all the victims of intergenerational trauma. So the first thing we want to do is stop traumatizing each other. So I'm on this social media for the first time very seriously in my entire life. Please let us talk to each other kindly and not label and not inflame each other's passions and talk about an American community and recognize that disagreement is okay and let us work together with kindness and gentleness and listening because the answers to our problem are not found on the left. They're not found on the right because after all, it's the left and the right that gave us all these problems. Let us look for a new path, a new politics, not based on the iconology of strongman leaders, but on a sharing of ideas where all of us self-govern, where we all take the responsibility of self-governance and stop blaming others for the plight that we find ourselves in today. Now, I've waited for this um, I'm going to ask Elliot, and I don't know if it's going to get on. If it's not on, we put it on before, but YouTube is being quite, uh, uh, paying quite good attention to Professor Penn these days because a message of community and lessening the tension, hey, they don't like that message. That's my message, you know, peace and, peace and prosperity. You know, I'm being watched. So I want to go out with a beautiful piece of music. We talked about Jamaica. What did all that suffering spawn? some of the greatest artistic creativity in world history. I want to go, if it gets on, we'll enjoy it together. If it doesn't, it's stirred up by Bob Marley. You can go find it online. It's a recording of them working in the studio. It's a practice piece. It's beautiful. I find it very uplifting. Please let us leave with this upliftment. Thank you very much. Elliot, could we go out with that? Steer it 